observance of Easter as we commemorate the resurrection of Christ is our deliverance from the ravages of sin and death. But this can hardly be understood by the world today because if there's anything which is hopelessly passe in our modern, sophisticated world, uh, it is the notion of sin. Uh, we have advanced beyond that concept. Um, we have become more intelligent, more enlightened, and we know that such a concept as sin is just an outmoded way of thinking by people in the ancient world. Sin presupposes a divine law, and thereby also presupposes a divine lawgiver. It presupposes a transcendent moral order, that is, a moral order that is true for everyone at all times and in all places, and a moral order that exists independently of our perception of it or acknowledgement of it. And the world today scoffs at these ideas. It's not that most people in our world, or at least in our culture today, don't believe in God. Atheists actually compose a very small fraction of the population. But rather, most people today view him as something like an indulgent grandfather-like figure who gives us some folksy wisdom in the Bible, you know, like God helps those who help themselves. Um, and cleanliness is next to godliness and other pearls of, of wisdom from Scripture, which, of course, those things aren't in Scripture. Uh, but people have a tendency to think of the Bible as just some folksy wisdom, some proverbial uh, statements that give us um, some helpful guides to life. But they don't think of the Bible as God's inspired word that it reflects something of his moral character and something of the demands that he places upon us as our creator. Uh, but we know otherwise. We know, we know that God is uh, almighty. He is eternal. He has always existed. He has created us in his own image. And he's given us a law to obey. That law reflects his holy character. It is embodiment of righteousness and justice. And it is something that we are to obey. And the consequences of disobeying it are very fearful. And the disobedience of his laws we refer to, and the Bible refers to, as sin. And sin, let it be made very clear, is very destructive. It is a very destructive force. And it destroys us in two ways. First, it makes us guilty before God. And second, it makes us unlovely people. Sin makes us guilty before God, and it makes us unlovely people. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died and rose again to save us from both of these effects of sin. Let us speak first of how sin makes us guilty before God and how our Lord's death and resurrection, when appropriated by faith, removes that guilt and reconciles us to God. Well, the Bible defines sin as a transgression of God's law. We read in 1 John that sin is lawlessness. And here the understanding is that that law is the law of God, the commandments that he's given to us in Scripture. And lawlessness is living without regard to God's commandments, living without regard to his law. Sin is a violation of his holy standards for human behavior. Again, John says all wrongdoing is sin. The Westminster Shorter Confession of Faith, or Shorter Catechism, rather, has an excellent definition of sin. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Any want of conformity or lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That is, whatever... In whatever ways our lives fail to conform to God's will as his will is expressed to us in Scripture is sin. 
And just as there is a penalty for violating the laws of the land, so there's also a penalty for violating the laws of God. That is, for breaking his commandments, for disobeying him. And that penalty, the Bible tells us, is death. Death follows sin as surely as night follows day. And the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. God told Adam and Eve as he warned them not to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And sure enough, when they took of that fruit and they ate of it, they began to die. They were withheld from access to the tree of life, and so their bodies began to age. Their bodies became susceptible uh, to disease and ultimately to death, and they did, in fact, die. And the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Paul tells us in Romans, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so we read in the early chapters of Genesis, the various uh, generations that so-and-so begat so-and-so, and after that he lived so many years and he died. And in the next generation, he lived so many years and he died. And on and on it goes through several generations. And it almost seems rather redundant. Why this repetition and he died? We know that after so many, if he only lived so many years, that that means he died. But I think the writer of scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wished to really impress this point upon us as readers, that that, um, sin is followed by death. It is the consequence of sin. The soul whose sins will die, God says through his servant Ezekiel. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And not just the death of the body either. We say that the penalty for sin, the wages of sin is death, but it's more than just the death of the body. It's also the death of the soul, spiritual death, eternal death, everlasting darkness. This is a punishment that involves the eternal torment of those who die in an unrepentant state without having been reconciled to God. This is almost too horrible to think about, isn't it? That the almighty and eternal God, whose power is beyond human conception, is angry with those who willfully defy his authority and live without regard to his commandments. But yet this is the testimony of Scripture. Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge. And he has indignation every day. Paul says in Romans that God will render to each one according to his works for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And listen to what he says in Second Thessalonians 1. He says, Jesus, when he comes again, will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, these are very sobering truths to think about, and I don't necessarily delight and speaking on these aspects of Scripture. And I don't very often, but yet it's necessary to understand this part of sacred truth in order to understand the nature of our redemption. We, none of us should be able to, or none of us should presume to say to ourselves, well, that applies to other people, but it doesn't apply to me. I'm really not such a bad guy after all. You know, my... So-called sins, if that's what you want to call them, are really peccadilloes in God's sight. They're really, they don't amount to much. I'm really not such a bad person after all. In fact, the apostle anticipates this line of thinking, and he refutes it when he says, if we say that we have no sin, 
we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then he basically repeats this. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, what does he mean when he says that we make God out to be a liar if we deny that we are sinful? Well, we are contradicting what God himself has testified concerning us. God himself has said that we all are sinners. We have all transgressed. And if we say we haven't sinned, then we presume to call God a liar, that God was wrong or he was lying when he said that we do have sin. We're saying that his testimony is false. In Romans 3.23, Paul says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Some people's sins are obvious and egregious, and they are particularly evil. The sins of other people are less conspicuous, but they're no less worthy of condemnation in the eyes of a holy God. And this is the thing. You see, we don't understand what holiness means. We don't understand the holiness of God. And therefore, we don't have a proper conception of the nature of, of the evilness of sin. And we think, well, why does God get so upset about sin? Why is God presented so often in Scripture as a wrathful judge? What's the big deal? It's because we don't have a right conception of the holiness of God. Think of the example of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, he sees the Lord high and lifted up in a temple, and the seraphim, the angels calling out one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they're so in awe of the holiness of God, these unsinning angels, these unfallen angels that they cover their eyes because they're not worthy, even as sinless creatures, to gaze upon the glory of the Lord. And Isaiah, who is a holy man, who had been a prophet for who knows how long, sees this vision and he falls down on his face and he says, Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a sinful man and I live among a people of unclean lips. This holy man, this prophet of God, saw himself as worthy of God's just retribution, even though he was what we would call a good man and a godly man. You see, we've never perhaps been confronted with the holiness of God if we think of sin so lightly. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And again, this, this applies to everyone, whether their sins are very great and obvious or whether their sins are not so obvious and maybe hidden from view and maybe, according to worldly standards, not so great after all. The Bible says very clearly, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. It means we're all in the same condition. We're all in the same boat. We all face the same judgment. And if we're going to be saved, we're all saved by the same Savior and in the same way. And it's important for us to know that as long as the record of our sin stands against us, that is, as long as our guilt remains, we are exposed to God's wrath. And this, again, is very frightening to think about. As the prophet Nahum says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? And in Romans, Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, we have to understand that this is not an irrational anger that God has. It's not a sinful anger. It's not unholy or unworthy of him, as our anger so often is. Normally, when we get angry... We get angry for selfish reasons. Our anger normally 
is a sinful anger. But God's anger is never sinful. The anger of God is a holy anger. It is the anger of one who has the right to be angry. It is one of his perfections, in fact, one of his glorious attributes for which he is to be praised, that his eyes are too pure to approve of evil, as the prophet Habakkuk says. In fact, just the opposite is the case. God condemns it, and he must condemn it. Otherwise, he becomes complicit in human sin, and this can never be. Think about it this way. Think of a judge who fails to uphold the law by failing to sentence a criminal with a penalty that is appropriate to his crime. He is an unrighteous judge, isn't he? And we can have no respect for him. He's not upholding the law. He himself becomes complicit in the crime that he is excusing by failing to punish the evildoer. Well, God will never become an accomplice to sin. He must condemn it and condemn all those who commit it. So then all are guilty before God. And it's important to understand that this, this guilt is an objective thing, meaning it's true regardless of whether or not we feel it internally. All right, there are two kinds of guilt. There's objective guilt and there's subjective guilt. There's guilt in fact, as a point in fact, and there's a subjective guilt that the subject, that the person feels within himself or within herself. And we're talking now about guilt as an objective thing. I mean that there, it's, it's true as a matter of fact that we have transgressed God's laws. We have disobeyed his commandments, and so we are guilty, whether we feel it or not. Now, a person who has sinned and is a sinner and who can live without any troubled conscience in defiance of God is somebody who has a very hard heart. The scripture refers to this as someone who has a seared conscience. And I have to be very concerned about such people. And the world is filled with such people who can lead openly sinful lives and not feel the least bit troubled by it in their conscience. And as I say, I fear for them because their hearts have become hardened. And how is it possible to reach such a person? How can they be saved? How can they be led to repentance if they have no consciousness within themselves of wrongdoing? If their soul is not troubled, they're self-deceived, and they think they're in no danger. I actually think it's a rather encouraging sign when somebody feels guilty. It's a rare thing. Because it seems to me that if you feel guilty, there's at least some sensitivity left towards God. It shows a heart, a conscience that still has some tenderness, no matter how small it may be, towards God, that they feel troubled that they have done something that has been offensive to him. Well, the good news of the gospel with respect to this objective guilt is that the work of Christ removes it. Our record of wrongdoing is expunged. It's erased. It's wiped away. Our slate is wiped clean. God says in Isaiah chapter 43, I, even I, and he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your sins no more. Isn't that good news? Think about and it's an unpleasant thing to think about, but think about a huge chalkboard or a whiteboard and, and all of your sins being written down on that board from the very first instance of transgression and disobedience before God, every thought, word, deed that you have ever done or said, and it's written on that board, 
And if you're an older person, the list is even longer than if you're a younger person. The board is filled, and you have to add another board and another board, and it's just filled with all of your transgressions. And God says, I, even I am he who wipes away your transgressions, and I will remember them no more. That is God's promise to us. Our sin is real, and it's damnable. It's condemnable. But the Lord's forgiveness is just as real. In fact, he is more eager for our sins to be wiped away than we are eager to have our sins wiped away. But as long as the, transgre- long as the, the, uh, the record of our transgression stands, we are under his judgment, exposed to his wrath. Thank God he's made a way for our forgiveness. And when we understand that our objective guilt is gone, that God has wiped away all of our transgressions, he's removed our guilt from us. Once we understand that, we really know it within our hearts and minds, then that subjective feeling of guilt begins to subside. It's like, wow, he has forgiven me. He has reconciled me to himself. And there is, therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The condemnation is gone. The wrath is gone. The record of our sins is gone. And we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the great glories of the gospel, this reconciliation with God. We don't understand it if we take a low view of the holiness of God and a low view of the nature of sin. But when we understand these things rightly, I tell you it is a cause for rejoicing to know that our salvation is such a great salvation and has come through such a great Savior. Now, how is it that we have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ? We can understand this when we remember that we are the work of his hands. He has made us. And like any master craftsman or like any skilled artist, he loves what he has made. What artist or what craftsman makes a thing of beauty and then turns around and destroys it, loathes it, hates it, destroys it? No one would do that, much less God. But it goes even deeper than this for God because not only did God make us like he made all things, but he made us in his own image. He made us in his own image. We bear the impress, as it were, of his likeness. So out of all of the things that God has created, and there's a great variety of things, a great diversity of things that God has created, and we look out into his world that he has made and we wonder at the wisdom and the power and the glory of God, yet at all all of these things, man lives on the highest plane because only man is created in the image of God. And, of course, you understand when I say man, I mean humankind. I mean men and women, human beings, share in the image of God. He has made us in his likeness. And so although we have corrupted ourselves terribly by sin, although we have played the part of traitors and betrayers, turning against the God who made us by willfully disobeying him, nevertheless, we are still the work of his hands. We still bear his image. And if there is nothing else he can love in us, then he loves his image in us. And so he pities us. He feels compassion for us. And although we are worthy of his wrath and curse and deserving of everlasting punishment, he desires to show us mercy. 
Now, this may seem like conflicting and irreconcilable impulses that God simultaneously feels both anger and compassion towards sinners. But it's nothing different than what a parent feels toward a wayward child. Disappointment, even anger over what his child has made out of himself. And yet yearning for his child to return and with an eagerness to receive him with open arms when he does return. And so the holiness and justice of God move him on the one hand to punish sin while the love and compassion of God move him to have mercy upon the sinner. And it's precisely at this point that we see both the wisdom and the beauty of the cross. The wisdom and the beauty of the cross. Jesus steps up and he says to the Father, charge their sin to my account. Let me absorb the wrath Let me absorb the condemnation and the punishment which is due to them. Let me be treated as a sinner in your eyes, my Father. Punish their sin in me and in turn treat them according to my righteousness. And in this way, you see, God is able to maintain his own righteousness. He does not allow sin to go unpunished, thus undermining his authority and the authority of his law in calling his righteous character into question. Rather, he demonstrates his own righteousness by vindicating the claims of the law. Sin must meet with punishment. This is what the law says, and this is what is done. But by a gracious act of God, that punishment is visited upon Christ so that those who are united to him by faith may not have to undergo it themselves. The wrath of God is poured out on Christ He is treated as if he was guilty of our sins, and in exchange we are treated as if we are righteous with his obedience so that our sin is imputed to him, he's punished, his righteousness is imputed to us, reckoned to our account, and we are treated as if we have never sinned. This is the glory of our salvation. This is what justification is all about. This is what our salvation is is all about. What a gracious act of God and how much God must love us and how much Christ himself must love us that he would undergo the tortures of the cross for our sakes like this. So this then is how Jesus delivers delivers us from guilt and condemnation and the penalty that is due to sin. Now you remember that I said a moment ago that sin destroys us in two ways. The first is that it brings us under God's condemnation. The second is that it makes us unlovely people. Sin makes us unlovely people, doesn't it? Sin mars the beauty of our humanity. It mars the image of God in us. In a word, sin is ugly. Sin is ugly, and it makes us ugly, ugly in character. It makes us unpleasant, obnoxious, disagreeable, unlikable. One of the ways in which virtue was summarized in the medieval world was truth, goodness, and beauty. Truth, goodness, and beauty. Where beauty and goodness are allied with truth, all of these things wrapped up together in holiness or godliness that, that once you walk in the ways of truth, um, you, there is, it is a morally good life that is lived, and it's beautiful. And it is beautiful. A morally virtuous life is beautiful. And on the other hand, a morally sinful life is ugly, isn't it? And we see it all around us. Isn't so much of the, uh, of, of the, 
discomfort and the dislike of the world around us because we see evil taking place. We see people kill one another. We see people uh, having racist attitudes. We see people demeaning one another, robbing one another, killing one another, being unfaithful to one another as friends or as spouses. This is ugly as well as evil. And it's appropriate to speak of these things in both ways, as sinful as well as ugly. And I think we should not whitewash it. Nothing is gained if we overlook the seriousness of the problem. And it's not just sin in general, sin in the abstract that is ugly, uh, in its general character as rebellion against God, but it's ugly in all of its particulars as well. Take the habitual liar, for instance. I mean, isn't lying an ugly trait? Doesn't it? reveal a deep character flaw in the soul. You can't respect a liar. He's not an admirable person. You can't put any confidence in him. That's an ugly character flaw. Or take a man who is enslaved to his lusts, a man who lives more like a beast than a human being in the image of God. Scripture speaks of those who live like unreasoning animals, urged on by instinct and appetite. Some people live this way. And they have no control or choose not to exercise any control over these sinful passions. And they're led on by their various desires. And they set all other considerations aside. Such people have no higher motivation than self-gratification. And they don't care who they hurt along the way or who they are unfaithful to along the way. They have no self-control and we can have no respect for them. And the same can be said of an immoral woman. She may have a pretty face but an ugly soul. Solomon says in Proverbs 11, like a a gold ring and a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. A beautiful golden ring is beautiful in itself, but when attached to the snout of a pig, (laughs) it detracts something from its beauty. So is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion, who lacks virtue, who lacks godliness. There is something very beautiful about sexual purity in both men and women. God has no double standards. The virtue of self-control, modesty in dress and conversation, the dignity and respect that are accorded the opposite sex, the way in which purity honors marriage, which is the highest and most important of all human relationships. There is something beautiful in, in chastity, in sexual purity. But on the other hand, there is something very ugly and inherently degrading about sexual immorality. It defaces the beauty of the act which God designed to be an expression of committed married love. Or take someone who slanders his neighbor, willfully and intentionally telling falsehoods about his neighbor in order to ruin his reputation. It's ugly as well as evil. Or take gossip or the gossip one who is always looking to hear and repeat some juicy little secret about someone. You know, gossip is different from slander. Slander deals with the truth. It's telling salacious truth about somebody else. And they get a certain kind of vicarious enjoyment out of doing so. But gossip deals, um, I'm sorry, slander deals in lies, but gossip um, deals in the salacious truth, telling these uh, dirty little secrets, digging up the dirty laundry of somebody else and telling it to people. That's, That's... Ugly when people do that. Or take somebody who is arrogant, haughty, filled with an extravagant self-conceit. It seems that uh, he thinks that people only exist to admire him. 
Maybe you've known somebody like that. Conceited people are ugly, aren't they? You can't hardly stomach them. It's hard to be around them. Well, we could carry this out much further in all the different particulars, but that's not my purpose this morning. My point is just to give you a few points of illustration about how sin makes us ugly. Sin makes us unlikable. Sin is repulsive. It's a defect. It's a deformation of the soul. And in the same way that Jesus delivers us from the guilt of sin by his death and resurrection, so he delivers us from the uglifying effect, if I can invent a word. He delivers us from the uglifying effect of sin. He transforms people. He makes them lovely by making them virtuous. He gives us beauty for ashes. That's the title of the message today, taken from the old King James Version in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 3, that God will give us beauty for ashes. And our life in sin and in rebellion against God is a life of vanity, a life of futility, a life of ugliness and despair and ultimately destruction. And he wishes to give us beauty in the place of ashes. Well, how does he do this? Well, some would say that it's by the power of Christ's example. And I don't want to minimize the importance of our Lord's example. We are to imitate him, but that's not all there is to it. I mean, if we were left up to our own devices and our own strength, simply to muster up willpower to live in, uh, after Christ's example, then we would all be doomed to failure because we don't have it in us by nature to do this. But God transforms us by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. By his death, Jesus has qualified us to receive the Holy Spirit, and it's by the Holy Spirit that we are transformed, that we are made holy, which is another way of saying made lovely. The fruit of a spirit-filled life, as Paul tells us in Galatians, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I think I missed one in there. Goodness, thank you. So you think of a person who models these things. Love, joy, peace, patience. So a person who is loving. A person who is more mindful of other people's needs and, and interests than of one's own. Who is generally, genuinely concerned about others. A person who is loving is a lovely person. A person who is filled with joy. I mean, who likes to go around with people who are just grouches all day? Nothing is ever good enough. Nothing ever pleases them. Woe is me. Life is terrible. Nobody's had it as bad as me. Nobody likes to be around a person like that. It's a joy to be around a person who is filled with joy, right? And when the Holy Spirit lives in us and we allow the fruit of the Spirit to take deep root and to bloom in us, then we are filled with joy as well. It may look a little bit different in different people, but the point is that it's not all doom and gloom all the time. Joyfulness makes a person lovely. Peace, the same thing. Patience, kindness. And Paul pairs those two together very frequently in his writings, patience and kindness. And the idea is that a person is patient when people do do you wrong, you're patient, you're forbearing, you don't strike back, and, but instead you are kind in return. Isn't that a lovely thing? Rather than to see, see somebody who is moved by vengeance, you strike me, I'll strike you back even harder. You know, that's just the opposite of what Paul is saying when he pairs these two together of patience and kindness, goodness, 
faithful. Isn't it a beautiful thing to see a couple who has been faithful to each other for 50, 60 years? And I know there are some in this congregation who have modeled this out. Isn't that beautiful? And isn't it ugly when you see unfaithfulness in a marriage relationship where there's a callous disregard for, for one's spouse because some other pretty young thing has caught my eye and I'm going to chase her or I'm going to follow after him because he's so handsome and my husband doesn't have all that, it ta- you know, all that I want. I mean, no, you commit yourself together and you're faithful together for the long term. Isn't that beautiful? It is beautiful. God help us to do that. A person who is gentle, who exercises self-control. All of these things, all of these various fruits of the Spirit make for a lovely person. Isn't that wonderful? Well, who would not want to be such a person? Who would not want to be married to such a person? To work with or for such a person? To be friends with such a person? So again, sin destroys us in two ways. It makes us guilty before God so that we come under his righteous judgment, and it makes us unlovely people. But by the death and resurrection of Christ, we can be delivered from both of these effects of sin. Delivered how? By calling out upon upon God and asking him to have mercy upon you for Jesus' sake. Jesus makes this promise to you, every one of you here. Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. We never read anywhere in Scripture somebody who came to Jesus asking, seeking his help, and Jesus saying, nope, this is not for you. Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. And Paul assures us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, regardless of age or sex or socioeconomic status, regardless of your race or whatever, whatever other difference that we often artificially make between people. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Perhaps you have never done this, and I would ask you what prevents you from doing this today. You can be delivered from the guilt of sin and therefore from its punishment, and you can be saved from who you used to be, and you could be molded into the person Christ wishes you to be which is a person molded after his holy character. That's one of the things that's how, how our sanctification is described, that we become conformed to the image of Christ. You look at Christ and you think, not only what a holy person, but what a beautiful person in terms of his character. And the process of sanctification includes conforming us to his image. He can give you beauty for ashes. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how